everybody, and welcome to episode 009 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that brings you all that is wonderful about food without the rambling, slightly racist political commentary from your elderly and probably incontinent great aunt. Which That's is the joy of Thanksgiving. Huh? <laughs> yeah, this that is about to say it is Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And uh, I was reading an article that this is the first year in a very long time that people are actively looking forward to the political discussions around the Thanksgiving table. So uh, I'm sure that people have had a lot of interactions with their slightly older great aunts with some interesting uh, feedback on America. Yeah, I know a lot of people that were not excited about that component of their Thanksgiving holiday. But we just had our Thanksgiving dinner yesterday because it's it was Saturday yesterday. And we uh, being in the UK Thursday and Friday were not holidays. So but luckily, the political conversation was limited to a actually nothing. I don't think it came up once other than, you know, the occasional word being thrown around. But no, it was very positive. <laughs> How was your Thanksgiving experience? It was good. It was good. It was your uh, father-in-law um, mm. who made a, as he does, a fantastic uh, barbecue turkey. He which, is the, uh, he's the king of that. Which I always thought like, oh, this is going to be a bit weird. Um, but it really isn't. It's just like a smoked, you know, it tastes, it's like mahogany brown because of the smoke and it just tastes so good. But we literally had more sides than I know what to do with. And there are a couple of things that like I really enjoyed about Thanksgiving. And there are a couple of side dishes that I have never got into. And maybe you could provide a little bit of color on. So you got your normal stuff, your stuffings, your, you know, your greens, etc., your rolls. But then America has these weird sort of, sweet savory things going mm. on like marshmallows and turkey do not mix um, then they, well i think they do you know there's always there's always precedent for sweet and savory coming together in the right doses you know who's a big fan of the sweet potato with the marshmallow toppings over here is nigella lawson really she is a huge proponent of thanksgiving as a concept as a as as food and of that particular dish I mean, it's not exactly traditional. I mean, it wasn't exactly around. I mean, I know that the original Thanksgiving is meal that everyone sort of references references has nothing similar to what we eat. I mean, there was lobster involved and, and, and stuff like that being in New England, which not many people do these days. But like the traditional turkey stuffing, you know, potatoes, etc. You know, I try to stay as close to that as possible. So anything I think there was like a variation on on ambrosia. You know what ambrosia is? Mm-hmm. Like yeah, they had someone. Someone made that at Thanksgiving, and 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 um, not my not my jam. I, I'll, I'll have my turkey gravy potatoes. I'll just have all my carbs. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, it's uh, the more I've tried to because this is the tenth year that we've done it with with friends and family over here in the UK, or maybe ninth year. And you know, you're always trying to recreate the quote unquote quintessential Thanksgiving meal, but there isn't one and you 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 dot around the country and it the menus vary substantially so i think it's it's whatever works together and it's what people like and what they want to eat and what's new to them and we i don't think we've ever done sweet potato and marshmallows mainly because i don't like it but we've certainly done sweet potato mash and we mix it up every year and you just kind of go off what people like and what they don't like and it's a very uh satisfying emotional is not the right word but it's it's satiating yeah but it's it's a bit more almost spiritual that meal it's yeah it's a a wonderful and an important thing and actually it started to creep across the atlantic i know more and more british families that are doing something like thanksgiving around this time and they 
you know, they experience pumpkin pie for the first time and, and this type of thing as well. So it, you know, and, and that's a good thing. Black Friday, not so much. That's, that's come over here as well, but I'm glad that the British are looking at Thanksgiving as a way of What's gathering that? family around the table. Yeah, I think it was Bill Bryson because Americans don't do the Sunday roast as well as the English. And so I never mm-hmm. felt like I was neglecting that, um, you know, but I, I like the fact that Thanksgiving is is picking up some steam in, in the UK. I think it was Bill Bryson who said that it was his favorite holiday because there's nothing around it. There's no commercialism around. It. Obviously, the next day is the biggest day in commercialism in the world. But, you know, there's no cards to be given. There's no um, presence. There's no rituals beyond eating too much and watching American football. That is kind of it. And so it's a very still to this day, a very pure day. And people still maintain that knowing that the next day, I mean, yes, Black Friday is encroaching more and more into Thanksgiving. But um, it's one of those days where there's no agenda. And it doesn't matter what religion you are or what country yeah. you're from. It's still very, very agnostic to that. It's all about being thankful. I would caveat that with, with a lot of people who, you know, kind of sweep under the carpet the initial, let's just say, less than than ideal origins of Thanksgiving and why. Yeah, we... <laughs> yeah. But... yeah no, I get that. But I think that the, the current modern meaning and significance of the of the holiday is is enough for us to offset that rather um sinister almost i just finished reading a people's history of the united states which is pretty harrowing read but uh but in a very important read as well so I, i encourage you all to read it but yeah the provenance of the holiday is not nearly as glorious as the modern day incarnation of the holiday but there we are exactly <laughs> well let's let's jump into uh last week's episode um last on, week on, that's ambitious. sorry last week oh, yeah. geez. so so this <laughs> beeping episode we had a little technical <laughs> hitch where the audio tracks were out of sync, which actually usually would be easy to fix. You just reduce a little bit of the the time on one and everything should sync up. But the lag on one of the tracks would increase randomly throughout the episode. So it took me a 12-hour flight back from Tokyo to break the back of the issue and finally get it out, which is why we had the delay. But And no one has seemed to have noticed it. I mean, like, I can notice it towards the end where because I am looking for it, but no one has pointed out, and I, I, I apologize, dear listeners, for the fact that it was, you know, we, we thought we were being so gung-ho knowing that your travel schedule was a bit nuts coming up, like trying to do almost back-to-back recordings, and that the, this technical issues did did pop up for, for Honey. So that's why it took a little longer and we thought we were being so uh we did set ourselves up for failure by saying by patting ourselves in the back for how quickly we'd got the second episode recorded but anyway here we are we, it, but yeah honey. and we did have some great feedback to, to honey and you know uh although we found it an incredibly interesting episode alex and i both stated that we are not the biggest fans of it as an ingredient so i asked on the mastication nation twitter uh what are we missing something like what what is your favorite application of honey and and people really took up in arms against this and, and provided us some interesting uh applications um so our good friend nick wilkinson said you know honey and goat's cheese which i've had before i'm gonna jump around a bit but cheese seems to be the best friend of honey um and i and i'm interested maybe it's the creaminess versus the sweet but um uh one of your friends noel chicken fingers dipped in honey cheeseburger with honey and cheese obviously yeah and so i replied to that and she didn't give me a reason for it so maybe well i am seeing noel in london tomorrow so i will ask her to explain herself i know that's an odd one 
ORD to anywhere, which is a oh, great yeah. handle. I'm guessing he's one of your layover listeners. Yep. Um, hot cornbread with vanilla ice cream drizzled with honey, Greek yogurt, mochi cake. I think, uh, yeah, I think those are like all three different, you know, applications for or, or platforms for honey experience. Hot cornbread with vanilla ice cream drizzled with honey. I that can, sounds good. Yeah, that does yeah. sound good. Yeah. Greek yogurt obviously is a, is a honey. And our friend Paul Papa Dimitrius said that as well. Feta and and goat's cheese, those are the white crumbly cheeses seem to be the most recommended. Yeah, yes. and Paul, I did say to to Paul, it seems like feta is like the number one thing that that everyone's recommending to go with honey. He wrote back, "Feta is everyone's best friend." So I agree. With um, that. I agree. Like, although terrible feta, I mean, bad feta is terrible, but good feta is 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 very very good. I think it's one of those things that has been ruined by sort of uh, mass producing, and like you have like low fat or reduced like you know whatever it is salt, and it just doesn't taste like anything. It tastes like packing material. But um, Paul very kindly said that if we're ever in Cyprus, because you know. Uh, as we all want to do he has a has a friend who's a who's a chef who does these uh feta parcels uh, surrounded by honey so if we ever make our uh, our way out there then we must have to try these so paul will be asking for recommendations if that ever happens and you're far more likely to go to cyprus than i am it's yeah not it's not exactly. too far from us and i'm sure it's got uh, a wonderful airport you guys can talk about on layovers <laughs> i think we did a a Cypriot airport, maybe maybe Larnica. No, I don't think we did. Maybe Larnica. I don't know. I have to go back. We've recorded something like on nearly seventy episodes of Layovers, so it's all kind of blurring together. But wow, um, yeah. So it. I'm glad that people gave us an education on on honey and the uses for it. I, I'm particularly intrigued by this hot cornbread with vanilla ice cream drizzled with honey. I, th- I think that sounds like a winner. Chicken fingers. <laughs> did, did you figure out if what the situation at McDonald's is? I'm sorry to say that I haven't been to McDonald's you recently. Let the team down. <laughs> sorry, I've, I've been <laughs> I've been all over the place, but um, I will I will uh, report back. Maybe I can um, convince that it's a, a you know, some sort of tax write off and go there for for lunch <laughs> or something. Um, well, I, but yeah, yeah, I think you know, we did get an education on honey, and I think perhaps I need to I need to be a little bit braver because I think it's one of those things where you could have ninety percent of dishes and go, I wonder what would this would taste like if I if I put some honey in it. Yeah, or added honey exactly. to it, or, yeah. or you know, drizzled some honey here, or added it to a marinade, or something like that. It's not like vinegar where it's gonna like you can't just like I wonder what would happen if I put some vinegar in this sauce because it's kind of probably gonna break it. Honey is one of those things where the la- the worst thing it's gonna do is it's gonna make it sweet. Um, and so you have a little bit of um, experimentation, your leeway that you're able to do, as opposed to you know some of the other things. So yeah, maybe I'll I'll try some stuff out. It, it's one of those things that I think could work with a lot of things. But back to our original point in the episode, are there things that do it better? And and are you just getting the sweetness of it? And are there specific honeys that you like more than any other, more than anything else um, that you want to try to get a different aspect, different floral note out of? Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely right. Well. Onward with our honey journeys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into the content, another sweet episode of this 009. That's pretty solid. We've done done well so far. Actually, no, I'm not going to say that because there'll be some awful technical snafu. We are doing acceptably so (laughs) far. It's Saturday night. No, it's not. It's Sunday night. What are you drinking on this Sunday night? Sadly, it's a little boring. It is um, just a just a pint of water. I think over the last three days, I've drunk you know enough wine, 
beer and bourbon to say, you know, have me set for the rest of the year. So just, just a little bit of wine. I think I sent you a photo of our, uh, our wine for Thanksgiving and it was a, a Magnum. So it was, um, four bottles of red wine. Um, I was a designated driver, so I didn't get to partake too much, but apparently it was very, very good. Um, it, so I'm just drinking oh, water today. You lost that coin toss clearly. Yeah, I know. I know. I I think it seems to be a, a running tradition that I get things I, I drive on Thanksgiving. I don't know why. Um, I, I I should just try and convince uh, my wife that we need I to hate stay to tell you though, Thanksgiving. A Magnum is two bottles. Really? Yeah. A Magnum was, is okay, one point five. Five that liters. looked bigger than that looked bigger than um than a regular magnum then this thing looked freaking huge what's it was a quattro or something like that it, well it could be a double magnum which as the name suggests is twice the size yeah that probably was a double magnum it was one of those things that you usually see on display in italian restaurants yeah well it could could well have been i mean it, it was a sizable bottle but was it any good yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I was expecting it to be a Merlot or or a Capsap, like a heavier red, but it almost was more like a Pinot Noir. It was almost. Um, it was very light on the on the tongue, and I actually enjoyed it. It was very nice. By the time we left, there was about a third of it left, so people made a sizable dent in it. That's so, what about yourself? Nice. What are you What are you drinking? Well, I just got back from almost two weeks in Japan, which was glorious, and we were all over the place. One of the places that we went to was Kumamoto, which is in Kyushu, which is one of the, the bigger southern islands of Japan. And we had been filming up in Kurokawa, which is a volcanic part of, of Japan. Not that most of Japan is volcanic, but this is particularly volcanic. And we were going from there to Fukuoka, where we were going to film. But for some reason, all of the hotels in Fukuoka, and there's a point to the story, I promise. There's a there all of the hotels in Fukuoka were booked because actually it turns out it was the Fukuoka Marathon. So our fixer, Joseph Tame, who who was with us the whole time and is a good friend of mine and Greg's, found this town, city, between Kumamoto and Fukuoka called uh, Amuda, which is an ex uh, mining city of about it's about the size of Livermore, so like a hundred thousand people. Okay. Thousand people. Nothing of significance, not to not to be disrespectful to them, but it wasn't. There was no reason why you would go there. They only got a Shinkansen station about five to seven years ago. It, it was just a normal town. Like people don't go to Livermore for the tourism if you didn't have the wine. That kind of place. But got there it. was a hotel there, so we stayed in this hotel in between, and we were wandering around after we had uh, a very nice sushi dinner at basically like the Denny's of sushi in Japan. <laughs> On the, on the kind of delivery belt system where you order on the screen and the sushi just appears. Magical. Anyway, so we were wandering around and we found... We were like freaks almost in a nice way. People would stumble out of bars and see these three white guys and go, Oh my God, what, <laughs> what's happening? And they came and took their pictures with us. But we found this place and I posted a picture on my Instagram account, which is at Cube Dweller. This chap had curated this scotch and, and whiskey bar which had 1,500 bottles wow. That's of, crazy. of the most extraordinary whiskey from around the world, including some U.S. World War II ration whiskey. Whoa. And there was, I mean, there was millions of dollars worth of scotch, scotch and whiskey in there. And I tried some extraordinary Japanese whiskey, which is some of the best in the world. And so the long answer to your question is I am drink, drinking Hibiki, um, Japanese Harmony Master Select whiskey nice which is from hibiki is a centauri brand for relaxing times make it centauri times <laughs> and it's 
It's really, really good. I actually bought it in Tokyo Airport. It was just a little bit easier, but it's so good and smooth. And I'm just so, I love Japanese whiskey. It is, it is really, really good because the Japanese don't, they're not good at making bad things. No. Like they're either going to do it or they're not going to do it. And if they do it, they're going to do it well. And and that goes for pretty much everything that they do, including um, their whiskey. Friends of the podcast, Keith and Alex, are actually in Japan right now. Um, and they're in they've been there for like a week uh, and they're in kyoto right now i think and they just did the there's a bit of famous whiskey distillery in in kyoto i think it's the guys who do the is it the guys who do the the um is it yama yamazaki i I think it might be yamazaki i think uh, because i saw some photos of them doing some tastings there um but they're loving it those guys just love japan and and so i'm glad that you know the whiskey is is on point there but given the fact that you've probably been traveling a lot more uh than than you'd like the last few weeks um what is the best thing you've been eating or is it the home comforts of a thanksgiving dinner since we last recorded i have been to copenhagen japan Dubai twice, Sharjah, but Japan was by far my best food experience, and we ate all kinds of stuff. But I think the two things that stand out for me were okonomiyaki in Osaka, which is like a Japanese savory egg and cabbage pancake, okay, which is cooked on a griddle right in front of you uh, in the restaurant. So there's a hot, really hot griddle, basically the size of a table, and they build like the base batter, which is flour, grated Japanese yam. The, and the cabbage. So okonomiyaki is a portmanteau of two words. Okonomi, which means how you like it or what you like, and yaki means grill. And the the what you like bit means you can add pork belly or shrimp or all of these other ingredients and kind of make it your own. And then they add this kind of sweet and salty tonkatsu sauce and sometimes Japanese mayonnaise. And then I always have when I'm in Japan, chicken sashimi at a izakaya. Uh, yeah, and I saw some people commenting me like, oh, is it good? Almost like... Yeah, it's fine as long as it's prepared well. It is good. Chicken, so raw chicken. Izakayas are, are like pubs, essentially. Yeah. Small, tiny, hole-in-the-wall pubs. And we were with a bunch of my friends in Tokyo, and they we went and ordered it. And it's basically touched against the grill for a second. So the, the outside has got a little bit of sear, but the rest of it, and again, if you go on my Instagram account, you can see it. It's delicious, and it's completely safe. It's prepared right there in the kitchen, and it's you know your 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 risk is very low. Otherwise, I wouldn't serve it to you. I feel so less cultured this week, this uh, this recording, then because you've always been to so many different places, and like yeah, I've I've been doing a bit of traveling to Seattle and 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 roundabouts, but I feel like I haven't had any standout meals this uh, recently. I mean, and so what I will go with, and it, maybe it's just, it, it's helpful because it's a bit of a tip to our our listeners. I love duck. I love duck breasts. They're one of my favorite things in the world. Um, I feel like a lot of people are, are intimidated by them, don't know how to cook them. Um, and I've been cooking them for a, the longest time. And I only just recently found a recipe that – not a recipe, but a technique that works for me every single time um, as far as the safety and getting that nice skin on the on the crust of the, of the skin – sorry, of, of the – breast um and it's a gordon ramsay technique and basically it's starting the breasts uh uh skin side down in a cold pan and then slowly bringing the heat up and let it, rendering out the the fat then flipping them uh for two minutes and then back onto the skin side and throwing them in the oven for for about 10 minutes and it just comes out perfectly and you're not getting splatted with hot grease and it just <laughs> works well and it just has that amazing duck flavor and you do it medium rare and uh, it, it's something that maybe once every two weeks i'll go buy a couple duck breasts and we'll have and it's just a really quick takes 
seven minutes on in the pan, 10 minutes in the oven. And so you've got, you know, your, your protein cooked in less than 20 minutes. So you can be focusing on everything else and it just tastes good. And so that was my it's, best thing since you recorded last. I love duck breast as well. Uh, and I, I do a similar thing. I actually do on the barbecue. Oh, I did. That. I did that as well. Except for Andrew, our bro- our middle brother, um, freaks out whenever I do that because one time I almost set his house on fire by cooking. Yeah, because there's breasts. so much fat on the outside, it does flare up. If yeah. you, I do remember that. I have some spectacular footage of that. Yeah, is duck expensive around your way? Well, since since Amazon bought Whole Foods, they've cut the prices twice. Not sure if you've been following the news here, but like um, when they first bought it, they cut most produce prices by about 30 to 30 percent and then just before thanksgiving they cut them again by about another 20 percent. so it's like 50 percent on a lot of stuff because whole foods can be expensive for two large duck breasts you're probably looking at around 16 to 17 us dollars which is not terrible well so I, we actually have it pretty good here we you, you do and like when i used to live in england i used to go to aldi and find f- giant frozen duck breasts and i like would have like this hour and a half long commute back from Heathrow to where I was living in Clapham. And by the time I got back to the house, they were basically defrosted and ready to go for me to cook. And so like I used to hit up this Aldi next to the office maybe you know once every couple of weeks because they were like four pounds per per large uh, duck breast. Yeah, I think we, 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 we're lucky with that type of stuff here. Yeah, it's rare. Um, it's more like the only meat that I find that is better in England than it is in the U.S., um, but to, to digress, I think we should should probably jump into something a little less savory and a little bit more sweet. Well, I was going to say, we rarely talk about, well, I was just thinking when we talk about the best thing we ate, it's rarely sweets. I'm not a big sweets guy, but I do love our subject for this I love this. I love this, uh, this subject matter more than anything. However, it may be the cause of me dying because we are talking about ice cream and i am lactose intolerant <laughs> and i love ice cream more than anything and so it's one of those cruel jokes uh, that mother nature played on me and maybe we'll dive into some of the the options that are open to me and people can tell me whether or not um i'm sure that everybody is very excited to hear about your <laughs> gastro gastrointestinal yeah. distress <laughs> that, that, that lactose inflicts upon you <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah it, ice cream is ice cream is i've been thinking about this a lot since we decided that we were going to do this for this episode i i'm a huge fan of ice cream i think it's one of those things that when it's good it's transcendent and when it's bad it makes you angry. really really disproportionately angry yeah yeah because they you pissed away money on it and it's really like it's it's an affront to something that should be universally joyful and it's one of those things that are, are controlled in america to the highest level, which we can get into later on, but it's, you know, a lot of people can get away with calling something ice cream when it's really not in a lot of places. And uh, maybe we can help you guys look for what actually is ice cream, what isn't ice cream. And so you won't be disappointed when you have some grainy, icy, yellowy vanilla ice cream. But let's jump into jump into it. I want to talk about it a little bit from the history, a little bit from what it is. Like I mentioned the the categorization. Um, but um, jumping into the history, had you thought about this? How long ice creams have been around? Well, I mean, I didn't go much further back than when home freezing and storage had been invented. Yeah, or I the mean, ability to sort of com- commercial freezers being available so that it was a, became a commodity. But does it go further back than that? It doesn't. It doesn't. Let me put it this way: there are people that are claiming that there are these 
iterations of a frozen dessert that uh, go back thousands of years. There are examples of it in ancient Greece, Persia, that uh, ancient India that all had a form of frozen desserts. However, they are far more like modern sorbet than an iced cream. You know, there was the ancient Greeks that mixed snow with honey and, and fruit um, syrups, which really? to me is not ice cream. I mean, that is a frozen dessert. There are uh, other examples in Persia of frozen vermicelli noodles mixed with sugar. Um, and That's disgusting. I know, right? And they make this sort of frozen dessert thing. But it seems that most people uh, would see this ancient stuff as... The forebearer, the the initial ideas, they would be people that had access and they would create these incredible insulated, I guess, what do you, what do you call them? Swamp coolers, swamp heaters, uh, buildings where they could store ice and, and snow into the warmer months and they could create these, these uh, cold, chilled dishes but they were not ice cream it seems that like the the real explosion of what we know as ice cream sort of happened in the 18th century um, there is this urban myth there is some truth behind it to catherine de, de i can never pronounce her last name dead Medici, thank you, um, who served ice cream at her wedding. However, it was more of a frozen snow with some flavors in there. There may have been some cream thrown in there. However, a lot of people say that Catherine de Medici was the birth of traditional ice cream. It's somewhat contentious. What we really find is that the first recipes sort of popping up are the late 1700s and early 1800s and and that's sort of when people started understanding you know how to use cream how to use sugar how to use eggs to create these um iced creams just the name in the word and there's a there's an ice cream company in portland called salt and straw and i and who do fantastic ice creams and i never put it together until the research for this episode why they're called salt and straw and while lo- doing some research, there was this one of the first ever what they call receipts back then from a book called Mrs. Mary Earle's Receipts in 1718, which is the first ever recipe that people can find for a traditional ice cream, where salt and straw is all about like a nod to the insulation. So what you're doing is you're using these tins that you're filling with your cream and your flavorings, your sugar, etc. And then you're placing them inside these sort of receptacles lined with ice, straw, and salt, which insulate and lower the freezing temperature to make everything colder. And so that's where the salt and straw name for the ice cream company came from. But basically, you you left it in a cellar for overnight. And by the next morning, you'd have, I, I couldn't tell, I couldn't vouch for the sort of the smoothness or the creaminess of it, but something that resembled modern day ice cream. It really almost is an American invention in its modern sense. In the 1800s, the founding fathers, Ben Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson were massive ice cream people. So this is well before home refrigeration. And there's a a famous story that George Washington in the summer of 1790 uh, spent approximately $200 on ice cream. And that was at a time, to quote Alton Brown, when $10 bought you a really fast horse. So that's how much he liked ice cream. That's pretty amazing. That's an unhealthy addiction, actually. Let's not beat around the bush. Exactly. And Thomas had an unhealthy relationship with this dessert treat exactly and and thomas jefferson apparently had an 18 step recipe to make ice cream because apparently it's got to be 
that convoluted for someone like Thomas Jefferson. Um, and it was served at the inauguration ball of James Madison um, by his by his wife in 1813. So it's had a it's not just like this savory sorry this sweet treat that you got for on summer warm nights. It's something that has um, had uh, histories in the highest offices in America, and it's something that is still to this day so ingrained in in, in American culture. I mean, I, I, for me, I know it's the most consumed um, America consumes more ice cream than any other country on the face of the planet um, per capita and I think that's why <laughs> I love it so yeah. much it's so available and there's so much of it uh, yeah and also it's it's good yes I mean generally you go into the grocery store in the US and I remember my grandfather my maternal grandfather who was a a stern man but knew what he liked and he even in like the 80s 70s and 80s flipping loved american ice cream he'd always come over and i think you know you can you can wander the aisles of an american grocery store and put your hand in and as long as it's not like not ice cream Mm -hmm. meaning it's soy milk or almond milk which isn't ice cream it's you know for the purposes of this conversation you would have to really screw up to get something that wasn't very good yeah what is ice cream the scientific explanation, and I love this, I found it's so up its own butt about explaining what ice cream is, but it's technically very true. Ice cream is a colloidal emulsion having dispersed phase as fat globules. So basically... That it, really sucks the joy out of exactly, it. Exactly. But basically, it's an emulsion because you're mixing eggs, milk, uh, sugar, and you're suspending these this fat in this in this chilled state but it really is just a mixture of things that shouldn't really mix and you mixing them together in the ice cream churn to create this stable cream basically but really what is it and we can dive into into the u.s uh, perspective because i think they've done the best job of sort of categorizing this it is you know it's cream it's sugar it's eggs and then pretty much everything else is up to you but the way wow. that- but there's one very important ingredient that you missed what air so for air me, is a key ingredient and it's not a bad ingredient it's it's there no, for it's a, a very reason. important ingredient it's a very important ingredient i think because that's the funny thing about ice cream you take milk cream and sugar and you mix it up and you have sweet sludge <laughs> it's kind of what it is yeah but then if you freeze it and you add a little bit of air to it and the right balance of all of those ingredients together and something incredible happens and and air is a is a key ingredient to ice cream you cannot have ice cream without air and and more importantly the appropriate amount of air so when you create ice cream i learned this because my wife used to work in an ice cream factory and we'll come to that later because that's pretty much why i married her but (laughs) when you're trying to create the archetypical texture of ice cream which is smooth and rich and not crunchy or crystally which is usually what happens when you freeze something it's because of how much butter fat all one word weirdly enough you have in it and that's the fatty part of milk the ratio of that to the other ingredients is absolutely imperative if there's not enough of it then the ice cream is like it's crunchy it's 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 like the stuff they probably had in the olden days Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not smooth, and that's fine if you're going to make something like a a, a sherbet or a sorbet, sorbet, <laughs> sorbet. Uh, yes. But if you want to make something that's that you, we all know and love is ice cream, then you need to have that right amount of butterfat. However, if you go guardrail to guardrail and you put in too much butterfat, it's like sucking on sweet lard. Yeah, it's got this nasty ass flavor to it. It coats the inside of your mouth. 
Yep. And actually, there's a there's a characteristic of ice cream. And did you come on the Dryer's Ice Factory tour? I did with the man whose tongue was insured for like a million dollars. For a million million bucks. We'll talk about him a bit, a bit later. But one of the things that that they test for when they're trying ice cream off the line is its mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. How it feels in your mouth. So set aside the taste and and texture, which is separate. It's it's how it feels in your mouth after you've swallowed it. Is it is it lingering and greasy and nasty? Okay, too much butter fat. And so the second component, which is uh, for texture and ice cream, is the amount of air in it. That when you make an ice cream at an industrial level, you can control at a very precise level the amount of air that's being in- introduced into the ice cream. And this can be used in nefarious ways other than to control the texture, which we can come on to in a minute. But that golden ratio of the core ingredients of cream and milk and sugar and the butterfat content and the air are absolutely critical. And as you've alluded to, are actually set out in law, the ratios that are required to legally recall something ice cream in the U.S. Yeah, so I'll just jump into that real quick and just run through sort of the FDA requirements. So basically, there's a section within the FDA code called just called frozen dairy product, and that's everything that's within there is inclusive of ice cream and gelato. And another thing that we'll get onto called frozen dessert, which is where bad things happen. So basically, for it to be called ice cream, it has to be at least 10% butter fat. Obviously, you alluded to the fact that it, if it goes too hard, high, it's just not going to be good, but it has to be at least 10%. For it to be what they call French or custard style, which is what most high-end ice creams are, it has to have at least 1.4% egg yolk uh, solids, um, and that gives that you know unctuousness to it with the, with the proteins from the egg. Anything less than that is going to be called frozen dessert. And so if you ever go to an American ice cream or just, uh, yeah, because American has to label it, but you you guy like Oreos, Briar's Oreo ice cream, it will say frozen dessert, not ice cream on there, but it'll be in the ice cream section. The, yeah, same with soft serve. Yes. And so if there's... Soft serve is a frozen dessert because that's around 3 to 6% like for, a, for a the butterfat. Butter yeah. So it cannot be legally... In the US, we'll come on to other areas in a minute, but th- that in the US, gelato actually isn't regulated in the US and that has th- around, between 3 and 8% butterfat, so it gives it that much... Uh, denser texture yeah. it also doesn't have cream or eggs and it's what so it's loaded uh, sorry. with stabilizers yeah the way that it works is that it's it's um it's got less air in it and that's why it gives us the denser mm-hmm. flavor uh, the denser mouthfeel as well it's also served at a warmer temperature really i didn't know that yeah is that it because it's more a, it needs to be a, more a, scoopable it's because it doesn't have cream and eggs in it Oh, okay. So it doesn't need to be. Got yeah. it. And, and yeah, and also that, yeah, it's creamier. It, it's best at that texture, which is, and that temperature is needed to keep it at that texture. So back to the to the FDA with the, with the issues and the terrible kinds of frozen dessert. If anything it states that it is uh, using 50% or more of artificial flavorings in its ice cream, it has to be considered flavored ice cream. So the, the example would be chocolate flavored ice cream rather or frozen dessert. It can't be called called chocolate ice cream because it's got more than 50% artificial flavorings. Uh, And then here's an interesting one. Here's the important one from my side. A gallon of ice cream, because, you know, that's the serving size, must weigh at least 4.5 pounds. And And so this is a very important point because those percentages that Will was talking about are by weight and not by volume. Because this was the issue is that they were less than scrupulous 
ice or frozen dessert or ice cream manufacturers were using the air to inflate the weight. So they were actually producing or to the volume, pardon me, so they could fill a, a container, uh, a gallon container with actually less ice cream. So they're, they are listed by, by weight and not by volume. So if you took a, like a gallon, which is the standard serving size in the U.S. of 10% <laughs> butterfat ice cream, so the, the, the base legal limit to be called ice cream, and pumped enough air into it to fill a two-gallon container, it would still be 10% butterfat. By weight and it would taste effing disgusting but that's the legal <laughs> amount so the rule is that it has to be one gallon must equal uh 4.5 uh, pounds or and or depending on how they want to uh, enforce the law here that air air volume cannot exceed 100 percent of the original volume so yes. and that because that's what you're getting like when you have this crappy ice cream that tastes like you're eating flavored air that's what they've done. They put way too much air in it so they can sell a container full of it mm-hmm. without actually investing and putting in more of the core ingredients of the fat and the dairy and the sugar. Yep. They just pumped it full of air. So it tastes like frozen ass. <laughs> if you ever have you know? um, some disposable income and, and don't care about wasting ice cream, go get yourself a pint of super high quality ice cream and a pint of crappy ice cream put them both into separate uh mason jars uh and throw them into the microwave you would think or you would hope that they you know they would melt and they would be close to their original volume but the remain what happening as you're as you're um, melting it is all the air escapes so that will give you an understanding of what how much air is in your favorite ice cream so a premium gallon or pint would probably lose about 20 percent of its total volume to air whilst the not so great ones could be anything between 30 to 40 percent um lost in air and so that's just showing you it's it, you know you're not getting as much bang for your buck but as we stated earlier air does play an important process in mouthfeel in in just overall flavor and in in texture so don't be upset when your pint of ice premium ice cream does lose 20 percent. that's there for a reason but that sort of you know visual experiment will let you understand what's going on there the process of increasing the volume by adding air is called overrun and that's calculated as you were saying as a percentage of the original product and the legal limit as you said in the u.s is a hundred percent but in other countries it's it's up to 120 percent and for the longest time a lot of countries didn't define what the legal definition of ice cream was so you had markets that were flooded with things that called themselves ice cream that were were not when we apply this definition and therefore were terrible before we get into the really bad ones so 10% is the baseline legal limit. When you get into things like premium, which is things like Ben & Jerry's, Haagen-Dazs, Dryers, and Edie's, which are the same company, you're looking at like between 12 and 14% butterfat content. And then super premium ice cream, which is a lot of the small chains, 14 to 16%. And when you make it at home, bumping up against 20% butterfat. You really don't want to go any more than that because then you get into the things we were talking about earlier with the lard, greasy flavor, <laughs> stuff like that. So, so there's you know premium ice cream, super premium ice cream. That that's it. Interestingly, there's a lot of documentation on this, which was actually kind of interesting. There's the Dairy Science and Food Technology website, and there's all of these consulting companies on global standards for dairy, Goff and Hartle, and the food labeling regulations in the UK were then usurped by the EU legislation to kind of try and define what it was. And when you go further back in this 
rabbit warren, if you will, I was horrified to see what the standard was for ice cream. In the UK, prior to the EU regulation coming in, if a product was to be labeled as ice cream, it had to contain a minimum of 5% fat and 2.5% milk protein. So if we go back to where we were earlier, that is like soft serve. Do you remember, Levels. I think it was during the BSC crisis when ice cream was being taken off the menu in England. And that's just, try and understand, your, wrap your head around this, that it's not because of the milk, it's because of gelatin. And like, this is how badly categorized ice cream was in England, that they were using cow gelatin to stabilize ice cream in England. We, we touched on this very briefly earlier about gelato and gelato needing many more stabilizers to compensate for the fact that it didn't have cream and eggs in it like ice cream really should that hot to bump up the fat content. So, and that's exactly why they were using horse and cow hoof gelatins to stabilize this stuff because it just didn't have enough of the things it should have in it. And that's why it was crunchy and crispy because it wasn't served at the higher temperature like gelato is, which which gives you the creaminess, the ice crystals break down. It was served at the temperature which ice cream is then stored at. So again, one of the many reasons why I married my wife is because she used to work at, at the the dryers factory in, in, um, in Union City, California, which is right there in the Bay Area near the San Mateo Bridge, if you know that part of the town. And... She worked in distribution, so she would be the sole person responsible for supplying the entire state of Hawaii with Dryer's ice cream. And that's not a, that's not an exaggeration. She really was, as well as Alaska, which, fun fact, we'll come on to a little bit later, uh, Arizona, a few, other, a few other states. But when they produce the ice cream, it's, it's not fully frozen for shipping. It's in this sort of unique and beautiful virgin state and it is utterly transcendent because they f they freeze it to minus 20 degrees fahrenheit for shipping that's its most robust form to, to to ensure that it gets through the trials and tribulations of getting across the the greater united states and that's not perfect temperature for the consumption of it which is why when you take it out of the freezer you should let it warm up a little bit but when it comes off the line it's at the perfect temperature for consumption and when you go on the dryer's factory tour, you get to try ice cream right off the line before it's been flash frozen for shipment. And it's amazing. You also get to have that if your wife works at the ice cream <laughs> factory. So she would come home with a trunk full of all of the experimental flavors, and which is probably not cool <laughs> from an employee protocol perspective, but I certainly benefit, benefited from it. And it was, it was, it was completely amazing. But if you if you freeze this two and a half or five percent butterfat content frozen dessert to minus twenty Fahrenheit, you get massive buildup of crystallization because it's not like gelato where you're keeping it at a much much higher temperature, and so you don't have the benefit of the high butterfat content to offset the low temperature, and you don't have the higher temperature to offset to, to get the creaminess like you would in gelato. So you had this nasty crap. That was really all you could get until things like Hagen dazs and Ben and Jerry's came over from their – actually, Hagen dazs is American as well uh, – came over from the U.S. And then the EU stepped in just a few years ago to set a, 
uh, an EU-wide standard on what was the legal definition of of ice cream, which is why the UK has had to endure terrible crap ice cream for generations. So I'm guessing given the fact that Deanne worked at Dryers and that's not the same as Briars. Do you know that's why that's why it's called Edie's on the West Coast? Yeah. So the, the two East founders Coast. were Mr. Dryer, uh, pardon me, Mr. Dryer and Mr. Edie. But there was already Briars on the East Coast. So they in the East Coast, they used Mr. Edie's name, but it's the same stuff. It's all made in the same place. So I was going to. And actually, Costco ice cream is Kirkland ice cream was for the longest time dry. Really? I didn't know that. I'm assuming with the amount of ice cream that you had, you never really took it upon yourself to make ice cream. No. But uh, I've done it a couple times. And one of the things I learned, which was, was um, very interesting, and it goes back to our, my, one of my favorite topics, uh, crystallization formation. And basically, when you've made your ice cream base, you want to leave that base after cooking because you're basically cooking a, a custard almost when you're making ice cream, um, when you're making the flavors and making the emulsion. You put it into a, into a container and then put it in the fridge for up to six to eight hours. And they some people call this aging, you know, almost like you're you're letting all the flavors get together. But really what you're doing is you're lowering the temperature. Basically what happens if you have a home ice cream maker that's not like a, a massive industrial size one is you have this frozen liquid filled bowl that goes into a, a churn. And so that's very, very cold. And if you put something sort of room temperature slash warm in there, the shock from the cold to the warm to the cold creates large ice crystals, which makes a very, very bad mouthfeel. So by letting the ice cream get to a cooler temperature before going in there, you make very, very fine ice crystals, which means that you have a smoother mouth texture. Um, and so you got to be, again, this is why you can get some really really good stuff and they've done that well um, if it's ever um, grainy they haven't had enough fat to sort of combat the crystallization but also they may have rushed the process um, but even once you're done making it at home and it's come out of the um the ice cream churn it's still in that soft serve state that you were talking about like what dryers yeah. has which is still fantastic and if you want to use it right then and there it's great otherwise you put it into your containers and throw it in the freezer overnight and then you have ice cream yeah. but it's something that like i if you want to make your own it, it's something i highly encourage you to do because it's it's fun and also you don't get the weird looks when you put the weird things into your ice cream because uh you can pick whatever you want i want to i want to talk about that in a second because i want to talk about the the best what your favorite flavor is which may not be the best flavor you've ever had. You know, there's there's the one you always go back to, and the one where you're like, "This is transcendent," but it was a little bit too much. And then the weirdest flavor you've ever okay. had. But uh, we talked about John Harrison very briefly, not by name, but John Harrison was Dryer's official taste tester, and I got a chance to meet him once, and he basically was the one that would help them develop new flavors. He was also responsible for quality control. As Will said, he had his taste buds insured for a million dollars. That wasn't an off-the-cuff remark. That was fact. And he would taste 60 ice cream flavors on a daily basis. He wouldn't actually eat them. He would spit them out. He was so in tune with ice cream that he was able to immediately taste the difference between 12% and 11.5% butterfat wow. content. That's in crazy. A product. Like he could, he could go, no, 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 there's something wrong with the machinery. This is 11.5%. And he actually invented Rocky Road as well. He really? He was the person who invented Rocky Road. That's yep. amazing. Um, yep. Well, because cold does taste uh, dull taste buds. So if you ever ate 
ice cream at room temperature with all the whatever flavors in there, it would be almost unbearably sweet. The coldness is why you can get away with having a Snicker chocolate syrup, you know, ice cream that doesn't, I mean, it's sweet, but doesn't blow the back of your head off, you know, when it's in its frozen state because your your, your mind just can't handle processing all those flavors in its cold state so do you have a favorite flavor of ice cream off the shelf or the one you could get in an ice cream yeah i i went through this big peanut butter phase i guess like i love i I love peanut butter swirls in ice cream and i love you know little chunks of peanut butter you know reese's pieces in there and stuff like that but i think that my go-to always there hits the spot is is cookies and cream yeah, cookies and cream is pretty hard to screw yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong it's, with like it's a literally chopped up Oreos. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with like a nice French vanilla, but like, it, we, and that's the most versatile ice cream. But for me, if I want ice cream, cookies and cream with nothing, no other chunks in it, you know, maybe some some chocolate syrup or something like that. But like, if I'm gonna make a sundae, that's probably the ice cream I'm gonna go with. Yeah, I th- I think so. I like I like cookies and cream as well. I think I think my favorite, and I I flip and love ice cream. I was just in Dubai two or three days ago and was wandering through the mall and there was a cold stone <laughs> and I had to, I had to indulge. If you've never been to cold stone, it's where they take uh, your base flavor of ice cream and they have these cold stones, hence the name slabs in front of them. And they mix all of the uh, accoutrement into it. But I think my favorite go-to that you would find in a grocery store, at least in the U S or in, in a, uh, ice cream parlor is Rocky Road. A because I like it, and B because I love the story of how it came to be. It was invented in Oakland, in California, in the twenties by William Dreyer, and he cut up walnuts and marshmallows with his wife's sewing scissors, and then added them to the chocolate ice cream. Because Joseph Eady, when they were part, Joseph Eady was a candy maker. He wasn't an ice cream dude, so he had all these sort of crazy ideas about what what goes together. So they put them. He's like, you know what you should add to this is marshmallows. So they added the marshmallows. And this, sorry, this just reminds me so much of that Family Guy sketch when uh, the guy is drunk, two guys drunk driving, one with chocolate, one with yeah, uh, yeah. peanut butter, and they, they crash together. And it's like, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Yeah, and, and Officer Reese shows but up. The name came from the fact that it was right after the Wall Street crash, and they wanted to give folks something to smile about in the midst of the Great Depression, which is why it's called Rocky Road, or so the legend says, anyway. But I, I, I like it. It's. You know, it's it's marshmallow. Now it's almonds. It's not walnuts anymore. Toasted almonds and uh, and chocolate ice cream. I just love it. So, uh, what is the weirdest you ever? That's had? easy. Uh, wasabi and ginger. It was spicy somehow. Well, because it's wasabi, but like, but you you have cold <laughs> sensation, mm-hmm. temperature in your mouth, and then heat. But obviously, wasabi isn't isn't a chili one. It's a it's a you know, it's a different type of it's spice. A, um, it's a rhizome. And it was it was. It was bloody delicious, and they put shaved coconut on it as well, which was really, really hmm. good. But it's not the it's not the weirdest I've seen. It's the weirdest I've tasted. Um, well, mine the weirdest one I've ever had is a bit of a historical one because for some reason one of the most popular ice creams in the twenties, I think, in like New York, was and this sounds so weird, pumpernickel ice cream. Mm. And they would take shavings of old pumpkin, pumpernickel ice cream, uh, uh, bread, and mix it in there with like a couple other things and some some um, uh, some spices, and that would be one of the go tos. And I had it, and it was 
interesting. <laughs> I think that must have been like what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like cinnamon in there and some other stuff to like round that flavor out a bit. Um, so that was my weirdest one. Um, I wouldn't go back. I know that there's like a lot of people lo- loving the mochi ice creams these days. Green tea, uh, red bean, and Hong Kong was a massive one. I've even seen durian, but not had the courage to try it sweet potato Um, was all over hong kong and japan last time we were there i remember visiting dad in um the philippines and they had somewhere along the lines lost the idea of an ice cream sandwich um you know being cookies with ice cream in the middle they actually just had um wonder bread with ice cream in the That's middle. disgusting. Yeah, and so they were kind of taking the ice cream okay. sandwich a little too literally. Um, I did not try it, but um, <laughs> I, I was like, this is a bit weird. Um, so there's a lot of different ice creams, and obviously we want to hear what your favorites are like around the world, what kinds are, are standard. Is vanilla the, the base in everyone's country, or, or do they use something else? There are very few ice cream flavors that I will categorically not eat. I love going back to my in-laws because they always have a, a – like a circa 1978 deep freeze in their garage full of wonderful dryers, experimental flavors. Because two of the three sisters worked at dryers at some point, so it's, there's a lot of brand loyalty there. But actually, I was just talking to my wife before we came on, like, okay, well, if you refuse to come on and talk about this, then tell me what was it like working in an ice cream factory? And all she said was cold, which is not really helpful. It was, though. I, when I went to go see her, there, the corridors were were freezing, but she had to figure out ways to get ice cream from California to Texas without going through the Rockies. So, because if they went over the Rockies, all of the lids would pop off as they went over the altitude and the ice cream would be ruined. But all she, she had to work out how to get it there fast enough so that the reefer truck would stay cold for the duration of the, of the trip. And how do you get a bunch of pallets of ice cream to Hawaii without them degenerating and to like places like Phoenix where there's a season for ice cream. When it gets above 115 degrees, people seem to stop eating ice. The orders would plummet. Well, I think that quite nicely leads us into that one little factoid that uh, I remember from my my trip. It also has I've double checked three or four times in the last 15 years since I was I went on the tour. What state in the U.S. consumes the most ice cream per capita? And yeah, one would think I, I can tell you this. I can tell you the state and the and the city because they're not in the same place. Because you'd think it would be like it would be like a hot place like California or Arizona, but that Arizona, I guess there's a point where it's too hot and eating lots of dairy, as Will would attest to, <laughs> just is not pleasant when it's 115 degrees out. But milk the state, was a bad choice. The, yeah, exactly, exactly. Ron Burgundy learned the hard way. State that consumes the most ice cream per capita is Alaska. Which is so strange. The city that consumes the most per capita is Long Beach, California. Why is that? I have no idea. Are there a lot of ice cream joints in, in Long <laughs> down there? There's a lot of good food in Long Beach, so maybe that's something to do with it, but yeah. And uh, just a little reminder to our UK friends, vanilla ice cream should not be yellow. I don't know why it is. I don't know what, it's, what, what they're trying to do, but in England, to this day, with all the changes in law, Wool's ice cream... They they seem to have their their vanilla ice cream be very, very yellow and, and considering that vanilla is black and cream is white, I'm not sure where the yellow is coming from. Maybe it's the egg custard. Yeah, you. I mean, you can get good ice cream in the UK. It's it's it, you can. I mean, not you have you have Hagen does you have Ben and Jerry's, but there are a lot of producers in the UK who make now good ice cream. You can you can now get 
crap ice cream still because the law hasn't changed even to bring it up to to that minimum 10 percent is still five percent so you can still get crappy ice cream here i know that the prince of wales has some fantastic ice cream as well and some odd flavors as well yeah yeah no absolutely i think i don't struggle to find decent ice cream in the uk it's it's nothing compared to some of the stuff i've had in the u.s but when you have a legal mandate baseline of quality at 10% and the legal baseline here is 5%, of course, the standard is going to be lower. It's by definition, yeah. it's going to be lower. So I, before, before we wrap up, here's a question for you. Do you like to, what's the word, bedazzle your ice cream? <laughs> Are you saying, <laughs> do, you do you I like, like an to ice add... cream sundae? Do you like, you know, do you, when you, when you go to an ice cream parlor, do you just say, give me a straight shot of the vanilla no, the... if I'm going to an ice cream parlor, I'm probably and like there are some very very famous ones in the Bay Area. Um, if I'm going to an ice cream parlor, I'm going to get um, a sundae. So I'm a chocolate syrup, whipped cream kind of guy. I don't really like crunchy bits on top of it unless it's like nuts or something like that. But I I, I don't really go too much with the fairy dust kind of stuff. I uh, yeah I, I fairy dust. <laughs> I like I like an ice cream sundae as well. I think one of the best ice cream experiences I've ever had in my life was in Ishigaki, Japan, which is in the Okinawa um, archipelago. God, we get it. You went to Japan. <laughs> yeah. No, this was this was in this in the spring with my kids, okay. and they have a brand out there called Blue Seal, which was it's it's very prevalent in in Okinawa, and it was actually created by the United States military. Really? Yeah, huh. to serve ice cream to American soldiers stationed in Okinawa after after World War II, and it's it's very good. So it was, it was designed to you know boost morale at a very low ebb in the United States and the world's history, frankly, and give them the kind of a, a, a taste of home. And the first factory was on the U.S. base in Okinawa, and it still exists, and it's still incredibly popular and my son luke uh had this flavor called blue wave which is their kind of like flagship flavor and it's ramoon uh soda ice cream with chunky pineapple ice cream mixed together and Mm. it like it's the kind of stuff that that dyes your tongue blue but they have the most wonderful amazing beautiful flavors at an american ice cream quality in a little corner of japan and I, I just I like that. That's awesome. And 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 dear listeners, we focused 100 percent on on making a point to make this ice cream. And so we know that there are hundreds of other frozen desserts that you know we didn't touch upon. And 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 we know that they're fantastic. You know your frozen ices, your sorbets, frozen and custards, sherbets, etc. And then um, you know there the stuff in in Japan with the shaved ice and stuff like that. So you know. We know that those are out there and don't feel like we're ignoring those. Just we have a passion for ice cream uh, and feel like the world needs to be set straight on what is and what isn't. You know, sort of wrapping up here, we'd love to hear what kind of ice cream you love best. Um, You know, what kind of toppings are your favorites? And what's the best and the worst ice cream you've ever had? I think that's that mm. knowing that we're moving away, maybe there's a generational gap on some people that are okay with the frozen icy stuff. But now the, the younger generations are like, if it's not Haagen-Dazs, I won't eat it. Yeah. I, th- I think that that's true. I think that's true. I, yeah. I'd love to hear some weird flavors that you've ice cream flavors you've had. I know our father was always obsessed with licorice ice cream, but I think it's mainly because it was black and terrible. Weird and... <laughs> yeah. No, it's nice. It's very nope. nice. Nope. 
Um, and so as we wrap up uh, the ice cream flavor, hopefully there are no technical difficulties with this one. And and try and hit that, yeah. that, that, that Christmas episode out. Yeah, um, Christmas episode. And then what are we? So it would be ja. We're not going to do Japanese food because that's huge. Or we could but, do Jingle uh, you have, all the food. We could, yeah, yeah, Jingle. Oh, there it is. <laughs> or Jingle, all the, you know, whatever it might be. We'll figure it out. Um, but we don't obviously want to steal away from whatever J might be. So, you know, Jolly or whatever it might be. But as we mentioned in the last <sighs> episode, um, we will, yeah, we will, um, you know, maybe see what uh, Christmases are like or, or holiday festivals are like um around the world um so feel free to write in with you know what your christmas your your hanukkah your kwanzaa your whatever else you celebrate your festivus you know um whatever you feel like celebrating in december let us know and we will talk about it i'll shoot a tweet out um asking for recommendations uh probably after this episode goes live um but hopefully we'll be able to get another episode out before the end of 2017 yes we will and i hope you all had a wonderful thanksgiving and enjoy whatever you're about to eat next but until next time well eat well